soon after the end of the American Civil War, Decoration Day began, led by a group of women who would put flowers on the graves of the war dead. There was a bit of dispute about the war, depending on north or south perspectives, on which, which graves got decorated. And it would take a few more years until 1868 when General John Logan would come along and officially proclaim Memorial Day as the day when all war dead, no matter what side they had fought on in Arlington National Cemetery, uh, that flowers were to be placed on the graves of those mainly men, some women. It would not be till 100 years later, till June 28, 1968, that uh, we had a Congress enact a uniform holiday bill, which meant there were four holidays that were moved from the day they fell on to a Monday so that you get a three-day weekend. So that's how this transpired into the last Monday of May. In 1914, the first Battle of Ypres, a.k.a. the Battle at Flanders in western Belgium, when the German forces were fighting against Britain and the Allied troops, was a massive battle with enormous loss and casualty. The British suffered over 58,000 casualties, almost 8,000 died. The French began with 84,000 soldiers and would walk away with over 50,000 of those men wounded. It was a very costly battle. There was a young doctor by the name of Lieutenant Colonel John McRae. He was a poet, a writer, also a physician. He and another physician friend were doing triage uh, during these battles. In 1915, he wrote a poem. And the story is told, not exactly precisely historically, but pretty good legend, that he wrote it out very quickly on a piece of paper, and he wadded it up and threw the piece of paper away. And some other soldiers standing nearby went and retrieved the piece of paper, and it became known as the world-famous poem, Flanders Field. Through this horrific experience, when he saw his friend killed, and of course, McRae had an interesting story because he wanted to quit doing triage and go fight. But he penned these words, and keep in mind what he's seen with all these primarily men being killed and blown to bits and wounded. In Flanders' field, the poppies blow between the crosses row on row that mark our place, and in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly. Scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' field. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' field. And the picture of the red poppy was a picture of blood growing on the graves of the war dead. It's a very vivid reminder of this Flanders' field and the red poppies. Three years later, Moynia Michael, who was a United States uh, humanities professor, wrote a hymn with a bit of an homage to Flanders' field. Her lyrics called We Shall Keep the Faith in 1918, read, O you who sleep in Flanders Field, sleep sweet to rise anew. We caught the torch you threw, and holding high we keep the faith with all who died. 
We cherish, too, the poppy red that grows on fields where valor bled. It seems to signal to the skies that blood of heroes never dies, but lends a luster to the red of the flower that blooms above the dead in Flanders Field. And now the torch that they pass to us, and poppy red, we wear in honor of our dead. Fear not that ye have died for naught, for nothing. We'll teach the lesson that you wrought in Flanders Field, and Flanders Field we fought. Have we taught the lesson that they fought? We're a country that's upside down in so many ways. In 1948, a commemorative three-cent stamp was made of Moyna Michael with her face and the red poppy, and you might still be able to get one if you're into stamps. But it was a time when the country remembered, and that's why we have Memorial Day to remember. If you are a veteran of any branch of the armed services, would you please stand for a moment and remain standing? If you're a veteran, would you please stand and remain standing? invite your families. Simon didn't say sit down, so I want you to keep standing. And I'd like your families who are with you, if they would stand. And along with the families with the veterans standing, if your father, your brother, your uncle, your son, anyone in your family has been in the armed forces, would you please stand as well? We'd like to acknowledge you as well. I want to thank you for your service. I want to thank you for your honor to Christ and to country. Um, I know we live in a culture that's uh, a little bit bizarre right now, but <laughs> beyond what a lot of us can imagine. But um, there are a lot of men and women in this country who thank you and thank your families and are in indebted to you. We open a Bible right now because of what men and women before us have done. We have the freedom to get in this room we have the freedom to have studies in our home. We have the freedom to say, I disagree, and I think God means this because of the, in no small part, what you have done. So let me pray for you and for our country, and then we will look into the Gospel of Mark. Our Father, whether on fields of foreign soil or here on Heartland's ground, we remember when many may not care or disdain the price of this history, the price of the freedom that men and women fought and bled and many died to hand a torch to us to keep held high. We thank you for your kind measures. We confess our poor care of this privileged treasure, the freedom that we have, not merely to remember our war dead, but to thank you for their families, for this country, Warts and all, sons and daughters who were lost, we stand on shoulders that are too often forgotten. 
We pass by graves of men and women who believe something that fewer seem to believe today. Yet we do not cling to a flag, but to a cross. Wherein the great memorial stands, not on beams or wood or plaques of bronze, but on a broken seal and on an empty tomb. We thank you. We thank you for the country that we do enjoy, as complex as it is. We thank you that we have the freedom to gather. We thank you most of all for the freedom you purchased, the ultimate sacrifice who bled and died and rose from the grave. We thank you because the offer of salvation is rich and free, that you have conquered death, you've conquered the ultimate enemy on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the last trip to Israel. Just, oh, by the way, um, poppies grow in Israel too, and I had never seen this before, but at the pools of Bethesda, there were poppies growing. The seed, of course, gets blown on the top of columns that are 80, 90 feet in the air. These red poppies were growing and it's an interesting reminder of the picture of blood, the blood of Christ, the blood of soldiers, men and women all. Well, we are back into the Gospel of Mark chapter 12 today, following the servant king, how his life challenges, questions, upturns, encourages our life. This section today is three short stories, if you will. I use the word pericope. It's a, a case of stories together, a little larger than a parable, not quite as long as a novel. But these pericopes put together make a point. And the first one is a confrontation Jesus is going to have, a counterattack we might call it. The second is a condemnation of a particular group. And the third is a commendation of a woman. And what I want you to keep in mind as we look at these verses today is there are things Jesus condemns. Too often we have the wrong picture of Jesus as a merciful, loving, kind, genteel, uh, all-tolerant, all-gracious, all-merciful, sort of pushover guy who we'd like to hang out with and make us feel loving and lovely. He's going to condemn some people here very clearly. But then we also have a group, an individual he commends. And make no mistake, he's condemning a group, commending one. And Mark didn't put this together as a neat literature piece. He put it together under the spirit of God's influence, and we are to see this counterattack in brief, this condemnation and commendation. What I want you to think about, are there any areas of your life that Jesus would condemn? Are there any areas of my life? Are there any areas of our lives that he would commend? Questions we probably have not asked or thought about in some time. Let's look at the story. First, the counterattack in verses 35 to 40. Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. It's included in all the synoptics, and if we were to go back and harmonize Matthew and Luke, we would know that two days prior to this being captured here in Mark has been the Hosanna, son of David, the so-called triumphal entry. And Jesus came into town, and they said, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, they sang the song. We talked in weeks past about son of David being a very specific reference to Messiah. 
If you weren't here, just a real quick update. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8 and following, the most important one I would turn you to, many Old Testament references that say, one is going to come who's the son of David. To use those words means he is Messiah. We only have it once spoken from Jesus' lip in the Gospel of Mark. We have it referenced another time by another person, but Mark uses it sparingly to make the point, if he's son of David, he's Messiah. Now, Messiah was also known as the anointed one. We take those words and we translate and transliterate them into English, and we call it the Christ. The Christ wasn't just one more prophet in a line. He wasn't one more David or Jeremiah or Isaiah. He is the prophet, the priest, the king. Jesus is setting them up with this counterattack to ask them, how is David saying something where the Davidic line, 2 Samuel 7, verse 8 and following, was that from your seed one will be on the throne of David forever. So Jesus quotes Psalm 110. And again, I remind you, depending on your familiarity with your English Bible, if you have something that's all capital letters in your New Testament, that is a quotation from the Old Testament. That's not a text mail that's shouting at you. It's all capital letters is a quotation from the Old Testament. Psalm 110 is the most frequently uh, cited psalm in the New Testament. And David is saying here, and the way Jesus records it, David himself says this in the Spirit. Two observations. Remember, David is a prophet. David wrote the Word of God. When David penned the Psalms, he's writing the very Word of God. Jesus adds, if you will, he wrote this in the Spirit, saying these things. And a second lesson from just his citation is, if Jesus is referencing Psalm 110 and David, what's he saying about the Old Testament? It's God's Word. So here's Jesus, the Son of God, saying, the Old Testament is indeed God's Word. Pay attention to it. So back to the scribes and Pharisees, what in the world did David mean when he talked about the Lord said to my Lord? Now again, depending on your English Bible, you may or may not have some helps in there, but the first word Lord is in all caps in the New American Standard, and the second word Lord is a capital L with small capital letters O-R-D. I know it's a little detailed, but the differentiation there is Yahweh says to Adonai. That's not just to mix things up in Hebrew. The designation of Yahweh was Yahweh and Elohim were typically the vertical Godhead of the Father, we might say, God the Father. Adonai was a Lord and more often differentiated to the Christ. How is it God the Father says to Jesus, sit at my right hand? Now, it's not Jesus in the Old Testament, but that's what Jesus is referring to to validate this passage to the scribes and Pharisees. To put it very simply, how is David the king, whose lineage is human, going to say to his son, you're the Lord, and he's quoting God, saying God the Father says, Jesus, Messiah, you sit at my right hand until I deal with your enemies. It is not unlike the question they posed with him about his authority, and he counters with John the Baptist. Remember that? If it's of heaven, then why didn't you believe him? If it's of man, then the people are going to rebel. This is Passover. This is heightened numbers of people in town. The crowd loves this whole discussion. We have no response from the scribes, Pharisees, the representative group of the Sanhedrin, But we also can read into this very clearly that this is the 
Trinitarian doctrine, this is the admission of Jesus, as close as you're going to see it in Mark, that he's Messiah. How does God the Father say to his Son, he's his Lord? And that was a question that would leave the scribes and Pharisees scratching their heads. Now, I see humor in this. I could be wrong. I think we're supposed to laugh when we read the last phrase, and the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. They're cracking up because they see the setup. They're, I mean, from our perspective, if you know Christ, they're going, you can't argue with God. You're going to lose. It's always 21 to 0 if you argue with God. You're a 0. And so when the scribes and Pharisees are always attacking him and, and challenging him, they're always going to lose. And the crowd's going, this is the best entertainment there is. They loved watching Jesus take these guys on and put them in a box where they had no answer. Well, we don't know. We don't know. We can't tell you. And the crowd enjoyed it. Then we move to the condemnation. Right on the heels of him excoriating them, he's going to condemn them in his teaching. He was saying, verse 38, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and for appearance' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Criticism of the religious authority is in their face. This is not a how to win friends and influence message right now. He is cutting them off at the knees, and they're in earshot. Beware the scribes. He's not condemning all of them. Beware the scribes who like to do these things. And then there are five things I want to show you as descriptors that Jesus talks about these scribes, where they're abusing their power, they're abusing their position. The first one, they walk around in long robes. Now, the priestly garment, of course, came all the way back to Moses' time when God gave Moses revelation about Aaron being the priest and the ephod and the breastplate and so on. But there were also priests that served the greater temple complex. And those priests had a very simple outfit, if you will. Um, over time, these things change and they become ornate. If you look at pictures of the Western Wailing Wall today, you'll see men with a, a cloth over their head called a tallit over their head. And it's got various colors. It might be royal blue or black. It's white, royal blue and white or black and white. It might have some gold thread in it. It's got tassels with a certain number of knots, a certain number of strains in each one of the ends. And inside is a Hebrew inscription that's monogrammed very beautifully. You can buy a tallit for 20 bucks or as much money as you want to spend. You can buy a pair of blue jeans for 20 bucks or $400, right? It's the same. You can buy whatever you want. The tallit was a prayer shawl that became ornate, just like the phylacteries they roped around their wrist and on their hand and put on their forehead. Jesus excoriated them. You broaden your phylacteries. You've lengthened the tassels on your robes because they like to walk around dressed up. Pretense. Secondly, they like the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. If you've been anywhere in a so-called so developing country where they have markets or squares and you go on market day, it's slammed. I mean, it's, it's bumper to bumper without a car. You're going like this, walking through crowds of people, buying, looking at knickknacks. If you've ever been to a straw market or if you go to Israel, the old city, you, you just feel like sardines going through the town. This is Passover. It's worse. So you like to use your identity in these garments and then you like to go to the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. 
Marketplaces are busy. They're transactions. They're commerce. But if an important person comes, like he gets a lot of attention. Again, when you go to Israel, you'll see Coptics, Coptics sometimes walk through the old city, and they typically have a bit of an entourage. And it's like parting the Red Sea when they walk through. Everybody moves out of the way. Because the dignitaries there. Jesus is telling these groups of scri- this group of scribes, you like the identity. You wear it. You like your position. You like the greetings in the marketplace. Thirdly, you like the chief seats and you like the places of honor. We'd say front row or head table. In the synagogue, there was men and women were separated, and where the men convened, there was a chest at the front that held the Torah scrolls, and you were seated by rank and priority. It's not wrong to be seated there. Jesus says you like to sit there. Um, some of us have come from church backgrounds where you have the big chairs where the pastor and assistant pastor, music director might sit on the front. I've preached in these churches where you got to sit. It's, it's really it's a throne. It's kind of ridiculous. I mean, it's you know I don't want to be unkind, but it's like really I got to sit there the whole time before I preach. Can I just sit on the front row? I have a bad back. You know I I don't like sitting in those big throne chairs. Some churches the deacons sit down in a in a row in front of them. It's not bad that they sit there. Jesus says you like to sit there. You want to be seen. It's pretense. He's not condemning the action of a seat of honor. Obviously, know from James. He says James tells us you know when you come in, sit in the back. And if something important happens, they invite you up front, then go up front. But don't sit up front, and they have to remove you. That's embarrassing to everybody. So just, you know, be humble. Jesus is condemning them. Fourth, he turns up the heat. You devour widows' houses. Beyond the appearance and the pride and the pretense of their robes and their position and their seating arrangement, they take advantage of society's most vulnerable. They ingratiate themselves on women who have lost their provider, they don't have much money, they might own a little money, they might own a home, they might own some property that their husband worked, and now it all goes away because these chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees ingratiate themselves and take it away. They're easy prey. Fifth and finally, for appearance sake, they offer long prayers. Now, look at this carefully. Jesus isn't condemning long prayers. He's condemning for appearance sake. I want to tread very lightly here, and I know I'm probably the only one in this room that would say this out loud, but I've been places where people prayed so long, I'm about to you know, lose my mind. It's like, really? Really? Uh, I think it was Spurgeon that said, most men's prayers need to be set on fire on both ends and cut in half in the middle. <laughs> now, sometimes people are genuine and lengthy prayer. Don't hear that. He's saying, for appearance sake. For appearance sake. I'm going to... Boy, I've had this long prayer, and I sound super spiritual as people go to sleep while I pray it. Make no mistake, Jesus is condemning their actions, condemning their behavior. They're reprehensible. Forget the position, the pretense, the garb. You ingra- Devour is a, is a very graphic word. You eat up the most vulnerable of society, the ones you're supposed to shepherd and care for. They're hypocrites. God will address these. The condemnation is and will be severe if they do not change their ways. Hebert wrote, To rob the poor and the bereaved under the guise of personal piety doubles the guilt. It's chilling that we don't have a precise indication of the judgment of this section, but if people don't repent of the abuse, they will face it. Uncomfortable question to ask. Do you 
misuse your position, your power, your credentials, your authority, where God has placed you? Is it pretense? Do you like the attention? you like the front row? you like to be up in a place that it's about you? We move from the condemnation to a commendation in verses 41 to 44. He sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributions to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. From the power and position of the rank misuse of the Pharisees and scribes, he goes to a widow who is completely opposite. Religious leaders were prosperous. She's impoverished. They were spiritually impoverished. She's spiritually prosperous. Sitting down opposite the treasury. This would be in the court of women. So we've moved in the story of Mark a little bit in the temple complex, a vast array of columns in the so-called portico. We're now in the court of the women. The court of the women wasn't just for women. The court of the women was the large area where everyone could come in, converted Gentiles, women, and men. But only certain men could go then beyond that. So this is where you have the collection receptacles. You want everybody to have the opportunity to give. You don't want to put the receptacles way inside where only the men can give. You want everyone to be able to make an offering. There were 13 trumpet-shaped receptacles. They had, according to some of the Mishnah writing about the, the Bible, the Hebrew writing, they had names over them. So for illustration, one would say global, one would say local, one would say general fund or something like that. They had names so that when you put your offering in that trumpet-shaped receptacle that went into a chest, you were sort of designating where your gift went. There were probably ones for free will offerings and guilt offerings. This is Passover. This is the biggest time of the year when people are going up and putting money in the treasury. It's a huge parade. It's a big event. It's a big deal. And Jesus is sitting in the court of the Gentiles watching this. Now, as he's observing the people, Jesus is not disparaging toward the rich. When Mark records that many wealthy people were putting in out of their surplus, he's not saying that's bad. He's just making an observation. The coin of that time was copper, brass, or some bronze. Silver, of course, was the most valuable. Now, to put in a large quantity, we have to go back in our minds a little bit and think about a donation. There was no paper commerce it was all coin. You got a metal receptacle. What's going to happen when you dump a bunch of coins into a metal receptacle? It's going to sound pretty amazing. So how many of you have these jars like by your keys or your front door? A lot of, a lot of have, have us above the washing machine or the dryer, and you put the loose change in those things. I've had friends, I've seen these vases where you come in and the thing's full of money. It's full of coins. The one we used to have over the washer and dryer, um, the kids would always pilfer through the quarters so there's just pennies and nickels left in it, you know. But it's this big jar of coins, right? And so you're envisioning coins. You take your bag of money. You don't take a wad of cash. There's no cash. It's coin. And silver, of course, being the most valuable. If they're putting in large sums, how do we know it's large? A lot of noise. A big, a big thing of change going in that trumpet-shaped receptacle. 
So don't miss the obvious thing you're supposed to hear in the text. They're putting in large sums out of their surplus. She puts in two little coins. Ding, ding. We don't hear this cascade of money going, whoa. It's the opposite of winning a, a, a you know, slot machine, I guess. You know? It goes in the receptacle. Wow, they won a lot of money. They gave a lot of money. No, this is just tink, tink. And this, of course, is what gets Christ's attention. A poor widow, verse 42, drawn attention to her. She put in more with two small copper coins. I'll spare you the math. A denarii was a day laborer's wage. And you remember the story of the day laborers. Some came early, some worked late, only got a couple of hours, they all got paid one day's labor. Not fair, we worked all day. You agreed, you remember the story? A denarii was a one day laborer. This is 164th of a day laborer's wage. It's not, not much money. A penny. And Mark gives us the little addition, which amounts to a cent the smallest denomination, if you will. Calling his disciples to him, verse 43. If we're to piece this scene together, I would argue very strongly that Jesus says, paraphrase, gentlemen, gentlemen, come over here. you got to see this. Pay attention to what that widow just did. I've not seen anything like this so far, people giving out of their surplus. It's not bad. He's not condemning the rich for giving lots of money. What got his attention was, gentlemen, you need to see this one. And then we get the descriptors where Jesus, of course, knows the hearts of all men, right? It's a teachable moment. The formula, truly, truly, I say to you, or truly, I say to you, we've talked about this many times. This is a pay attention. This is a red signal flare going off in your Bible when Jesus says, truly, truly. You pay attention to it. It's a solemn and severe admonition, warning, teaching. She put in more than all the other contributions. Now, a penny isn't worth the wealth. He's not talking about the actual uh, numerical value. He's talking about the value from the heart. It's easy to give out a surplus. It's a very different story to give all you own. And there's no less than three modifiers. He says, out of her poverty, she put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Each of those modifies her, her, her impoverished condition. Each of them tells us what he knew about her. She had nothing left. Many conservative commentators wonder, she did this during Passover, uh, during Passover, which is a time of feasting and celebration, and now she's broke. She's got no feast. She's got no Thanksgiving dinner waiting for her. She gave it all. And this is the one that got Christ's attention. Linsky writes, although her gift was only two small copper coins, her faith-prompted love made the gift, quote, entirely of gold in the eyes of the Lord. The widow is a personification of a person who trusts completely in God, not her, his resources. The widow is a personification of a person that loves God more than wealth. The widow is a personification of a person that knows who Messiah is. Kelly wrote, the test of liberality is not what is given, but what is left. It's probably not too much to read in this story, and I, did, I have never seen this in my life. Some of you have already seen it, and you go, oh, no big deal. I never saw this till 10 days ago. The story is about two things primarily, the condemnation and the commendation. The condemnation, the most egregious part is you devour widows' houses. And now we go to a story about a widow 
that's only got two pennies left, one cent left. Could she have been a victim? I don't know. But the story sure sets it off. You're so egregious, you pretense, you're proud, you're a hypocrite, and you devour widows' houses, and you offer these long prayers for appearance sake. You're condemnable. Guys, look at this. Even though she was disabused by the system, even though she's impoverished, this is faith, this is pride. And he couldn't have made a more you know, black and white comparison of who has his heart. Giving out a surplus is not wrong, it's not bad, but probably most of us in this room give out a surplus. It's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. But giving is a reflection of the heart. And what caught Christ's attention was the contrast of those who gave, even though there was a lot, it was easy, versus one who gave all. This passage does not say give everything you own. It can be misapplied and misabused in that way. That's not good stewardship. We know from the whole counsel of Scripture that we're to be good stewards. But the story Jesus is, is comparing and contrasting is how religious abuse hurts people. In spite of that, there's a faithful woman who gives all she has because she loves God. So I want to ask you a couple of questions about tithes and offerings. And um, I do it. Some of you won't like it. I remind you, we already took the offering. We're in the clear. We're not going to pass the plate again, so take a deep sigh. We talk about tithes and offerings a lot in the evangelical community. And a tithe just means a tenth. And most people, that's sort of where they go. That's their goal. Uh, my counsel is you begin at a tenth. But liberality and generosity isn't a tenth. When we go out to eat, which um, I'm sure most of us in this room do, um, I don't know where you tip the waiter or waitress, but Cindy and I always tip at least 20%. We haven't tipped 10% since probably our first year of marriage. I remember going out to uh, lunch with a man. We lived in the northern Virginia, D.C. area for many years, and he owned seven companies. And we went and we had this beautiful lunch that he insisted on paying for, and uh, let's say it was $40, and he put down $4 for a tip. And I said, you know, uh, let me add to that tip a little bit. And I said, we always give 20. And he goes, 20%? And I said, I don't remember the precise number, but the 10%. I said, $4. I said, what's four more dollars to you or me? Really? What's four more bucks to you or me? And he looked at me. And funny, to this day, if I was to see him, he would say, I'm still tipping 20. His wife still likes to tip 10, but he tips 20. They never worked in food services. That's the moral of the story. They never worked on their side of that as a waiter or waitress. They never understood you get this crummy tip, especially on Sunday after church, the worst tippers in the world. What's four more bucks? What's five more bucks? What's six more bucks? I know you got a family. I had, we had four kids. We had six. I know it's a lot of money. But if I can't factor that in, maybe I shouldn't go out to eat to give that person an insult. They don't make much money. Now, I'm just going to presume a lot of you are generous in tipping. I don't know if you are. I'm going to presume that. Why would we give Christ a tenth? It struck me years ago that if I can live on 90% of my income, I can live on 80%. I can live on 75%. I have friends who are living on 50 and 30 and 20%. 
I don't compare myself to them in their generosity, but I want to grow as a generous person. When Cindy and I were married early on, uh, Dave Ramsey wasn't around. We only had guys like Ron Blue and Larry Burkett, who some of you don't even know who those are. Um, but the principles were very simple, and we were, just, we were just scared and foolish. We lived under our income, so you don't spend more than you make. You live under your income. We avoided debt. We gave first, and we paid the mortgage. We lived under our income. We avoided debt. We gave first, and we paid our mortgage. And we started that out as young 20-somethings. Because we were too stupid and too scared to go into debt. Today, debt's passe. Everybody's in debt. It's not, you know, that's what it's all about. It's, just, it's only a few percent. It's only this. I can have this now. Different world, different time. We lived under our income. We avoided debt. We gave first. And we paid the mortgage. Over the years, um, a friend of ours had told us that she was giving 20% to the Lord. And I looked at her and went, wow. And I just thought about it, talked to Cindy about it, a mutual friend of ours. He said, I can live on 80 as easily as I can live on 90. And just as a sidebar, I've been, people have called me arrogant and, you know, I shouldn't tell this story. I'm going to tell you, I had to learn this. The only way I can share you is to tell the story. So if you want to be mad at me for being arrogant, that's your problem. Um, I don't mean that to be catty. I'm just saying I'm, I'm sharing what Christ has done in our experience. We live under our income. We avoided debt. We gave first, and we paid the mortgage. And then somewhere along the line, we said, well, let's increase that 10%. And I tell young couples all the time, I know you're upside down. I know you got student loans. I know all that. You start somewhere. Start somewhere. A tenth isn't a magic thing. That was the minimum. In fact, I would argue if you added up the free will offerings, the guilt offerings, the sin offerings, everything else, you're at 22.5% in the Old Testament for a good, pious Jew. That's still the law. Not legalism, that's what the law provided. So when you give 10, that's okay, it's not bad, it's not sin. I'm just asking you the question. So as we grew in our faith, we get a check. We'd get an honorarium. I made a commitment when I became a pastor. I would never take an honorarium for a wedding or a funeral. Wasn't trying to be a super spiritual guy. I said, look, the church is going to pay me a salary. And if I ever do a wedding or a funeral, that's part of my normal responsibilities of being a pastor and a minister of that church. And I will not take a, a wedding or a funeral on rim. Now, y'all want me to do your wedding. I know that. Um, but, <laughs> and I have clever people that give us a gift card. And you know what we do? We give the gift card away. Because I won't take an honor for a wedding or a funeral. That's part of my job. Now, it's not because I'm a great guy. You know why I do that? Because otherwise, when somebody asks me to do a wedding, I go in the back of my head, hey, maybe I'll get an honorarium. That's me. That's my sinful issue. Hey, if I did that wedding, maybe the hey, they got a lot of money. I served their wedding. They're going to give me a lot of money. So I decided 30-some years ago, I'll never take an honorarium for a wedding or funeral. Now, when people are really crafty and clever and sinful and give us money anyway, we give it away. When we get money we didn't anticipate, we stop and we pray about it. We don't spend it on the next thing we want. We say, okay, Lord, we, we call it our spiritual slush fund. We put it aside and say, let's just sit there and think about it. And you know, I'm so fortunate to be married to a woman. We both love to give. And it's fun. And if you don't understand this, I'm going to tell you, this is the fruit of growing in generosity. If you don't know how fun it is to give, you haven't learned what giving is. Because it is indeed more blessed to give. Because we're proud, and when we receive, it's hard to receive. 
So we like to give. And as you grow in grace and knowledge, it's all his anyway, right? We're always stewards, never owners. So we started this trajectory. Whenever we got a raise, we would increase our giving before our standard of living. If ever we got unintended money we didn't know about, we would increase our giving before our standard of living. And over the years, that 10 went to 20. Sometimes it's gone way above 20. Sometimes it goes back. It's not legalism for us. It's generosity. Now here's what I want you to hear. Because we, as, as Dave says, God and Grandma's way, what we said was we're going to avoid debt, we're going to live under our income, we're going to give first and pay the mortgage, it works. You don't get a lot of money in ministry. Let me, if you're going in ministry to make money, let me talk to you afterwards. And your head examined. Going to, some, going to engineering, going to science, going to investments, going to some other world, going to business. Don't go into ministry if you want money. What I will tell you is if you handle this God's way, you will not lack for money. And yes, God will do things along the way that will astonish you. But you baseline, you have to live under your income. That's so hard in a culture driven by wealth and, and possessions and accumulation, bigger, better, newer, more. We're guilty of it just like everybody. We're in Williamson County for crying out loud. Under your income. Avoid debt. And, and I, I don't say you never go in debt. There are times some people had to go in debt. In hindsight, maybe this and that, but you know, get out of debt. Work to get out of it. It's really not that hard. And then you give first. Because to me, giving first is a statement of worship. It's an act of faith. I love you, God. I'm giving back to you. The religious leaders took advantage of widows. They ingratiated themselves on the most vulnerable, and Christ condemns them. And the widow who has nothing is the one who gets his commendation. He condemns pride. He commends humility. He condemns pretense. He commends simplicity. He condemns hypocrites, and he commends the pure in heart. Brooks writes, she gave her entire livelihood. Jesus gave his entire life. Doesn't mean we sell all our possessions literally and give to the Lord. The passage is comparing and contrasting a group of condemnable actions in the name of God and a no-name widow who loves God. You don't have to have pretense and position and power and robes to be important in God's eyes. Father, thank you for your word. Even at times when it may singe us a bit, may it be your word and your spirit and not some preacher flapping his jaws. Help us to honor you with what we have, with what we say, with what we do. Help us to be generous, open-handed people who grow. Help us to be men and women who know we are always stewards, never owners, that it belongs to you. We do thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're the ultimate teacher, but you're also ultimately patient. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful Memorial Day weekend.